Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hello, and welcome once again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton Stevens. And this is the podcast where I ask my guests to reveal the five things from their life that they choose to have preserved safely in a time capsule. They can pick anything they like, a person, a place, an object, some music, even a smell, something they still have or something they wish they could have again. They pick four things that they cherish, but they also pick one thing from their life that they would like to be rid of or wish had never happened, something they would like to bury in the ground and never have to think of again. But hopefully, as you've clicked on this podcast to listen to it, you already know all that and have actually pressed the skip forward button. In which case, you'll almost certainly join me again in a second when I say, and that's why he painted it blue. (laughs) Very funny story. Anyway, my guest in this episode is the comedian, actor, writer and social media sensation, Matt Green. Matt has been performing stand-up comedy since 2003 and has appeared and emceed at venues all over the UK and indeed the world. He's regularly one of the most popular stand-up shows of the Edinburgh Festival. As an actor, he's been seen on TV in such shows as Cuckoo, Fresh Meat, Doctors, Casualty, Starlings, EastEnders and loads more. And on the radio, he's been in lots of comedy shows and plays, including Shush, Cabin Pressure and with me in Lynn Truss's comedy Inspector Steen, where he plays the wonderful comedy creation Constable Twitten. Recently, Matt has found a new outlet for his talent with his brilliant Twitter and Instagram sketches. But more of that in the podcast. So, let's get on with it. Here is the lovely Matt Green and the five things he put in his time capsule. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right, okay, there we are. We've sorted the world out. That's a good thing. Yes. So, uh, now we're going to discover things about your life. (laughs) 
Matt, four things about your life that you treasure enough to want to put into a time capsule and one thing that you'd like to get rid of and bury in the ground. Yeah. Okay. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's an it's a interesting one trying to work this out because I think initially I thought, well, this is, I'm, I'm sure I'll be able to work this out, but um, it's like, you know, any of these sorts of things, like thinking of your top 10 books or records or whatever, you suddenly start going, oh, actually... Do I mean that? Or do I not mean that? So anyway, here, here, are my, here are my things. Right. So I think my first one would be one. That, this is a tricky thing to put in a time capsule. I think all the others you can are objects you can put in. This one would be tricky to put in, but I think I'll put it in sort of uh, metaphorically, which is my scar. Right. So I have a scar across my torso, um, pretty much all the way across, because when I was two, I had cancer um, of a kidney and I had it removed and I had... Um, big operation and loads of chemotherapy, radiotherapy, all that kind of stuff. And I have this big scar, which is all the way across my body. And it's sort of, I think that, that, that in some ways that's always felt like it's always been there. And so it's always felt like a really important part of me. Um, mm. it, it's always a reminder that I was very lucky to survive really that, uh, you know, if I'd been born 10 years earlier, maybe certainly 20 years earlier, probably wouldn't have made it. And when I was a child, I used to go to Sheffield Children's Hospital. That's where the operation was done. I used to go back there a lot to do sort of follow-up checkups and all this kind of stuff. So every initially every few months, and then it became sort of every year or so. And I still go every five years now to the hospital to sort of mm. do a sort of a follow-up thing. Um, and it's just, uh, yeah, and, and it's a sort of reminder, I think, of that. It's a reminder of, you know, the NHS and how they saved my life uh, and have saved other people in my family as I'm sure they have for most people yeah. um and and how grateful I remain for them particularly with all the sort of stuff happening politically at the moment there's a, you know there's a sense in which the NHS is sort of under attack in various ways and and that always reminds me that if I had been born in another country you know with a different health system maybe you know particularly like America or somewhere it could have been very difficult for my parents yes yeah they'd still be paying for it Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things that every time I pay my tax, I'm not suggesting that I never claim expenses, but, <laughs> but I'm not someone who sort of tries to sort of really screw the tax system. Because I always think, well, you know, someone's got to pay for it. And, uh, you know, if my few pounds can help a bit, that's that's what it's all about, really. Yeah. And it's just been, it's yeah, it's just been there. It's been something I've had my whole life and has been a reminder. And it's funny now when I meet doctors, if they're examining me for whatever reason, they're very surprised by it because it's so like, big like now if you had that operation you they do it with keyhole surgery and it would all be very much more reduced and and you'd probably have like a tiny little scar a dot or something but i have this big thing across my torso which is kind of quite doesn't hurt or anything obviously but uh, it's sort of yeah the reminder an enormous reminder I mean, what an operation to have at the age of two. Yeah. Basically opening you up almost completely. Yeah. And to get to the kidney yeah taking everything inside you out of you. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never sort of <clears throat> um, looked into the detail of it because I think it might make me um, sad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I think they did it twice as well, from what I understand um, wow. from my parents. Obviously, I, I have no memory of this, but I think they had to go in twice because I think they initially went in and they realised it was there was a problem or the tumour was bigger than they thought or, or whatever. And so they had to go stop and restart and do it again. And it also sort of, it, it sort of defined my childhood in a way because that was something that was very different about me, obviously. And mm -hmm. I would go back to Sheffield a lot to these checkups, but also, you know, every so often they had these sort of meetups of people who had had the same treatment mm. every five, 10 years or something. There'd be a big sort of 
party i guess a celebration of the fact that these people we all made it um yeah and obviously i think that's probably more for the parents really than us because obviously none of us really <laughs> when we were all young kids we didn't necessarily know anybody but obviously the parents all kind of got to know each other on the wards and there's a charity called pact which is called the parents association for children with tumors and leukemia which which they sort of support parents in that hospital and and all that kind of stuff who, who whenever i do like a charity fundraising thing i always give money to to them because they help my parents out a lot and stuff. Because so, it's quite um, a trauma, isn't it, for parents? I think so, yeah. You have to be strong. Yeah. But I think once you've been through that trauma, it never leaves you. I'm very fortunate that I've not been through it with mm. my children, but I have sort of been through it with my grandson, and it does still wake me at night. Mm, I'm sure. And I think it is that as I've got older, probably even only recently really have I realized as my friends have started having children and I've um, I've now got nephews and and I started sort of seeing that and thinking oh yeah that's that must have been awful <laughs> like I think when I was a kid you just don't think about it it's just something that happened to you and it feels quite sort of it's almost exciting in a way like when you're all sort of growing up you think gosh this this crazy thing happened and I'm sort of a survivor and that's exciting there's almost a feeling of of specialness or something mm. uh, but actually as I get older the more I think, God, that must have been horrendous. Because I didn't, as I say, because I was so young, I didn't really know much about it, except the aftermath of it later, the various follow-ups and stuff. But it must have been terrible for my parents. And, uh, and because at the time the treatment was still quite experimental, it was kind of relatively, this was the early 80s, so it was, they were still working out how to do it. They didn't really know what they were doing in some ways. Yeah. And um, I remember reading a book, I think it's called The Emperor of All Maladies, it's about cancer, basically. And I, didn't, I certainly didn't read the whole book, but it's a fascinating, very long book about the history of cancer and its treatment and stuff. And I read a bit of it, and I remember one sentence that really struck me, which was like, it says, basically, the treatment of cancer pre-2000 is effectively medieval like in terms of what they do now like the ability they have now that the treatments they have now are so much better so much more targeted and careful and everything and at the time it was kind of full spectrum just chuck everything they can at it and see what happens and cut stuff out and blast you with various things and sort of burn it out as well yeah almost. burnt it out with radiation and with chemotherapy mm. and all those different things and all that stuff gets sort of thrown at you as a tiny kid mm. and yet i've kind of come through it and you know um, yes there have been some side effects and things but it's not nothing sort of horrendous so it's like yeah it's, I, I feel like that does need to go in the time capsule for me because that feels like the first 15 years of my life feels like that that was really really crucial you know yeah absolutely how long did you spend in hospital then um I don't know I think a few weeks probably or maybe two or three months really and then obviously just quite a lot of going back and forth yeah as I say I, you'd, you'd have, sort of have to ask my parents that I mean I think I was there for a few weeks with the operation and stuff and then went back for chemotherapy um, and radiotherapy stuff and then over the course of the next few years sort of was a fairly regular visitor. In Sheffield? So was that near your home? Yeah, we lived up in um, Wakefield. Right. My parents still live there at the moment. So that's not that, not too far from Sheffield, it's about a half an hour drive. Mm. But yeah, I did that drive a lot. <laughs> uh, or not, obviously I didn't do it, but I, I was driven on that drive a lot. And uh, every time we went to Sheffield, my, it became a sort of, there was a John Lewis in Sheffield that was my treat. <laughs> that became like, we'll do the hospital thing and then I'll go to John Lewis and I'll get to buy a little toy or a, there were those little, um, you know, model animals or things like that that I used to like buy one of those each time. And that became my kind of, uh, yeah, that became the sort of the routine. Yes. You look at how things change in such mm. a short time. My wife badly burnt her hand when she was a small child. I think mm. about the same age as you with the operation. And she was, to a large extent kept away from her parents. Wow. And they were only allowed to visit her once every two weeks. Blimey. 
It's amazing, isn't it? And yeah, that um, I think I was probably in hospitals sort of around the time that that was changing. So things like PACT, that was part of their role was to provide accommodation for parents who couldn't stay overnight. So I think I'm sure that yeah, visiting hours were quite restricted and all that, all that mm. kind of thing. And I think as I've been to hospital over there, I've someone who's been to hospital more than most people I know, just because of having done lots of checkups and things over the years. And it, and it does feel like every time you go, you think, oh, this has become slightly more sort of customer friendly, for want of a better word. You know, like they've, yeah. they've introduced more and more stuff. Oh, there's a news agents and there's a somewhere you can buy a cup, cup of coffee and, and there's a waiting area for all this kind of stuff. And it's, it just has become more pleasant an experience. I think initially yes. when we were there, it was quite still probably a bit more like it used to be in the sort of almost the Victorian age of it being quite austere and uh, quite a forbidding place to be. Yes. What are you doing here? Yeah. There was the attitude they had towards parents, I think. Definitely. Although I think being treated at a children's hospital helps that. I think, you know, they're used to parents being there and kids. And it, I always remember it being colourful and fun, a fun place, you know, trying to be fun. Yeah. Lots of paintings and all that kind of thing. Well, how extraordinary. I had no idea that, about that in your past at all. Mm. I'm not surprised you're so grateful. Yeah. We'll definitely put that into the time capsule. Good. It's an extraordinary thing. In all ways, as you say, for the operation itself, for the scar, which, you know, must be pretty impressive. First time you say, yeah, come on, let's, uh, let's go on a date. You fancy going swimming? Yeah. <laughs> it's quite fun in uh, gym changing rooms when people are like, what is, what's, what's, what's that? And just go, oh, my God, where did that come from? You know, <laughs> I didn't have that yesterday. What's going on? The price they make you pay to get into the swimming yeah, pool is ridiculous. All right, Matt, lovely. That goes into the time capsule as your first item. Great. Okay, what's number two? So number two, moving forward a few years, mm-hmm. would be... I was trying to think what would be the best thing for this. I think it would probably be the poster of my first show for the Cambridge Footlights. Oh, wow. Basically, it's a poster of me and it's uh, on a red background. It's me and four other people, uh, Richard Thompson, who's still a good friend of mine, Alex Bonham, who's now, I think, living in New Zealand, uh, John Oliver and Richard Iwadi. I don't know what's happened to them. And it was when I was, um, it was for the touring show, which is the big show that happens at the end of every year. And... You know, I worked really hard to get to Cambridge. I was really excited to get there. And then I got there and I was always into sort of doing theatre and drama and particularly comedy. Like that was always sort of my favourite bit of that, I guess. I'd written bits and pieces. I'd written a couple of plays and stuff at school and had sort of put those on. And I think comedy had always been sort of the thing I was edging towards doing more than anything else. And then, you know, got to Cambridge and obviously Mm. the Footlights is like a big thing and people have heard about it. And I was at a college that John Oliver was at, so... I met him quite early and he was in the third year, I was in the first year and he sort of said, oh, if you want to do comedy, come along to this Footlights thing. And I did a few sort of effectively kind of open mic shows, they're called Smokers. And and I did that with a, with a friend in particular who we sort of, we formed a sort of double act, did some sketches together. And then at the beginning of the sort of second term, they start looking at casting for the big show. And John and Richard were definitely going to do it because they were the sort of president, vice president of the club at the time, and they were definitely going to do it. But they'd also brought, they brought in this director who was a professional director who they'd liked what he'd done in Edinburgh called Cal McChrystal, who's now quite famous and has done lots of shows. He works with Cirque du Soleil a lot, and he, he worked with James Corden on One Man, Two Governors, and he's he was the comedy director of Paddington and, you know, he's done loads of stuff since. But he he was sort of this pro director and he'd sort of, he was mostly working on sort of clown comedy stuff. And John and Richard loved what he did and said, can you come and do this thing? So it meant that we, it meant there was an open audition process, which was quite unusual. Normally sort of, it's a bit of a kind of like, well, whoever's done quite well over the last couple of years, will get them in the show. But Cal didn't want to do that. He was like, no, I want to see everybody. So I went along with no expectations really thinking, well, you know, 
I'm in my first year. It's quite unusual for the first year people to get into these shows. I'll just go along and see what happens. It'll be fun. Yeah. And I got the got the role um, along with Richard, who was also in the first year. So that was really exciting. And then this whole process sort of started of making the show. And the poster is kind of in a way really reminds me of all that because we went to like a professional photo shoot. They hired like a professional photographer. Wow. And we went to London to do a photo shoot, which I'd never really done. I'd, I'd been to London a couple of times, but it wasn't, you know, not somewhere I knew at all. And so we, sort of, we were on this mini bus to London <laughs> for a day in, in this studio with, you know, white walls and all that kind of stuff, which I'd never experienced before. And then we sort of tried all these different photos stuff out. And, and then we did the show and then the show went quite well. And got some nice reviews. We went to Edinburgh and that was my first experience of doing the Edinburgh Festival, which has been a huge part of my sort of life and career since then. Mm-hmm. And it went quite well and the shows sold pretty well. And so it was just this experience, this sort of constant experience of like having a great time and thinking, oh, this is a thing you could do. Because yeah. I think I'd gone to Cambridge thinking maybe, you know, maybe I'll have a go at that, but it's not going to be something I'll do. Like it will probably, be, I'd love to, but I don't think it will, I don't think it'll happen. And then I think it was that experience of doing that show really made me think, oh, no, this is a thing that you can do. And John and Richard were already sort of beginning to make their own way into doing stand-up themselves and sort of getting the odd bit of writing and stuff. So I could see that they were already beginning to make it a bit of a career already. And so that's kind of inspiring. And obviously, you know, the club has got great history and you've seen people coming through. So you think, well, if they've done it, I guess there's a chance I could do it. And that sort of, that was the start. That, That was the starting place. Yes, it's interesting because it was at a time when people would move into stand-up. You wouldn't necessarily move into sketch performing. Yeah. I'm a bit older and therefore, well, I say a bit older, <laughs> and uh, I was at a time when you didn't go into stand-up. Stand-up didn't really exist. Yeah. So we all went into performing in sketches. Yeah, and it's it's a funny one, that, because I think I also, that was 98, that show, and then, so I graduated 2000 and... and and I still wanted to do sketches, really. That was what I, my main thing was. And I did, a, I did a show with Richard and we did a double act show, which went to Edinburgh 2002. Mm. But then after that, found it hard to get any other work from it and did a bit of acting here and there because I picked up an agent, did some plays and a bit of telly stuff, but not very much. And I was sort of feeling quite like I want to do something that is performance and writing related. I don't quite know what that would be. And then I, and I was like, well stand-up is the obvious thing to do yeah and Richard had started doing stand-up before me and had sort of had already started doing open mics and stuff and and I went to see him and I thought oh, okay yeah this is this is something I could do I guess because it had never been something I aspired to do particularly it wasn't like something that I was desperate to get into no. and then I sort of drifted into it a bit and then actually really enjoyed it and I thought oh actually, this is a fun thing and then that you know, then stand-up became my job for, for like the next 15 years plus, you know. And I still do bits and pieces of other stuff, but yeah, then stand-up sort of took over a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So the style of this show, the Footlights show that you did, yeah, with that influence of that director, was it very different to other Footlights shows? Because in a way, they've got a tradition of how they are, yeah. Footlights shows. They are clever sketches and witty and verbal. Yeah, it was completely different. Yeah, very, very different. And it was it was very clown based mm. um, in that sort of something that it, I, I, I'm always sort of slightly amused now because it's become very trendy in the last sort of 10 years or so, that sort of Gollier style of clowning. Yeah. But Cal was a Gollier student and had and was a fan of his and had sort of used his techniques. And so we learned a lot of that stuff a long time before a lot of other people <laughs> sort of uh, in the comedy world sort of caught up with it in a way. But he was he was. Um, I don't know if you ever saw People Like Us or, um, uh, well, The Boosh. He worked with The Boosh early mm. on. So this very sort of cl- very clowny, very silly, 
And yeah, it was interesting doing that as because yeah, as you say, the the tradition for those sort of footlights shows is that they're kind of verbal and written, and everyone sub- submits sketches and then they get sort of put together, and then you sort of create some sort of show around it. Mm. But he he was like, no, we're going to devise it. We're going to just get five of you in a room. We're going to spend three weeks, um, sort of just coming up with ideas, just coming up with silly ideas and games a lot of it was games based you just start with a game of like you know you're, you're not allowed to do this he's he has to do that she has to do that and then find a way of making that into a scene and how did that and a lot of it yeah a lot of it was very visual a lot of it was physical i was thinking about it this morning um possibly the funniest scene in it or certainly one of the most memorable ones yeah. was a scene where it was the four of us the boys playing a acrobatics team but i had just died <laughs> so we were called the Great Dandinis. It's like, uh, Great Dandinis are lovely to, you know, they're excited to perform for you tonight. Just uh, sadly, though, one of them has just died, but we're going to do the show anyway. We're gonna, and it was that classic thing where, and it was basically me just as a corpse. Um, <laughs> so, and they sort of threw me around the stage and I sort of, and they had to sort of keep me upright. I was sort of just doing this kind of like dead face all the way through. Yeah. And I had to be very floppy. And just every time they let me, I sort of then would lean forward or lean backwards. And there was a lot of, it was classic sort of silent comedy stuff, mm. really. Slapstick, basically. And it was fun. I mean, I also, there was a lot of times where I just fell off things and like hit things and <laughs> um, fell on the floor. And, and by the end of that tour, I don't know, it was about 50 or 60 shows, I was very sore. Yes. <laughs> I think, and I look back at it and I think, I definitely couldn't do that now. There's no way I could do that anymore. But when I was like 19, 20, my body was a little bit more able to just deal with it. You know? Yes. And in fact, of course, you weren't properly trained and people trained for years to be able to do that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he sort of gave us a very, very literally sort of crash course in this sort of style. Yeah. But yeah, it was really, it was actually, I think, very helpful long term because he taught us this stuff about your clown and, and and you've got to be aware of how the audience sees you and you have to sort of respond to, it's all about, you know, clown is, I think, at the end of the day, all about responding to the audience. Mm. So if the audience likes something, you do it again. And if they don't like it, you do it again anyway to kind of try and make them like it. It's all about being very open and very warm and allowing the audience in. And there's no cynicism in clown. There's no sort of sarcasm or cleverness. It's all very silly and simple. Mm. But there's a real power to that when it works. It's really powerful because the audience really invests in you and you invest in them. But it's hard. It's really hard. And I think when you're a 19, 20-year-old who's never done anything like that before, I definitely took a long time to work it out at all. And I don't know if I ever, I don't think I ever kind of nailed it. But I think I got, there were moments where I thought, I've sort of worked this out. But I think it did help because, as you say, a lot of that sort of comedy is very verbal and very sort of witty and clever. And I think it gave me a look at another way of doing things, which I think otherwise I don't think I would have ever done. I think I would have been very stuck in that very verbal trying to make verbal jokes, which I think in the end, again, has limitations. Yes. He was the first person who looked at me and went, you know, you look quite young. You know, you're quite young looking and you're quite, you've got quite a baby face and we should do something with that. Like you should be the young, I was the work experience boy. <laughs> that was the joke, you know, and you should be like playing a 12 year old basically, you know, and I, I, and I was 19, I just got to university. I was thinking, oh, I'm a, I'm a man. Yeah, yeah. And, and this guy going, no, you look young and you, and you look a bit weird. And I was like, oh, and that took me a while to get through. But actually, I'm, again, I'm glad he did because that, that allowed me then in subsequent things to be like, yeah, that's fine. That's funny. Yes. It's funny to be like that rather than the ego thing of going, no, I'm a, you know, I'm a clever guy. I'm going to be clever about stuff. Like, no, that's, that's not always um, funny. <laughs> no, that, that is exactly what 19-year-old lads who've just got to Cambridge would want to be. They'd want to stand up mm. there and be Stephen Fry. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to be, you know, Bill Hicks or I wanted to yeah. be, I wanted to be, 
telling truth to power and, and all that stuff. And I, I still did a bit of that. I still, you know, slipped a bit of that in occasionally. But with that show particularly, it was a completely egoless show. There was no, we wore stupid costumes and we did all sorts of ridiculous, silly things. And there were definitely some shows where the audience had come expecting, you know, Stephen Fry, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And were, were quite disappointed. <laughs> which is like, what is this? You know, this is just silly. But when they got on with it, you know, when they kind of got on board and wanted it to be funny and silly and just a, a stupid show, which was just stupid for the sake of being stupid, then it, w- it was great. Oh, Matt, I'm really jealous. <laughs> it really sounds like the sort of thing that would have suited me at that age. I desperately tried to be the witty, erudite person mm. that I was asked to be quite often in review. Yeah. But it didn't suit me at all. I was much better at being an idiot and much better at falling yeah. over and those sort of things. My way of making things work if they weren't working was to turn to slapstick. Yeah, I think it's so important that people don't lose the the fun of silliness and sometimes that's just what it is. Sometimes it's about being stupid. And I remember, I think there was a review of us, there was a phrase in it which said something like, it's a mix of the cleverly stupid and stupidly clever, (laughs) which is a nice way of putting it. Nice, yeah. In a way, that's what you're trying to always achieve is that sort of, when you're doing something stupid, but you're doing something clever with the stupidity of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Cal was very not interested in witty stuff. Like if you, you know, did a pun or a sort of wordplay or something, he'd just be like, what is that? What are you doing? Like, why are you, <laughs> don't try and be funny, just be funny. All that kind of Gollier stuff they talk about. about yeah, yeah. You know, he did that exercise where you have to just walk into a room and be funny. And it's the most terrifying, people always talk about, you know, people bursting to tears after a while because, you know, you kind of, because you think you walk in and you think, I've got an idea. And, it, and the idea of the exercise is about sort of stripping away any ideas you have Mm. like don't have an idea just be in the room be something have a thought don't have an idea just sort of some there's an image that i I always loved which is like if you come onto the stage with ideas it's like you've walked on carrying bags right and if there's another idea that's there on the stage you can't pick it up because you've got these bags already but if you come onto the stage empty and you see an idea you can pick it up straight away and it's a really nice way of thinking about it and i think i still think about that in terms of when i do stand-up when i'm doing particularly comparing Mm -hmm. When your job is to be interactive and to be funny with the audience, it can be dangerous to go on with too many plans and too many different thoughts of like, here, here I'm going to do this and that. And they, you've got to have something at the back of your head, probably of like, just if nothing works, I'll do this. Mm. But keep that right at the back of your head and just try and be in the moment and try and actually just see what happens. And if someone says something funny, go with that. Don't sort of think, oh, that's not what I was going to do. I'll do something else, you know. Yeah. Because um, nine times out of ten. That's what the audience wants. They want to see something a bit more, a bit improvisational, a bit uh, yeah. a bit off the top of your head, you know. Oh, well, I wish I'd seen this show. That <laughs> sounds absolutely fantastic. But we will put that poster in as a mm. happy reminder of a, uh, what a brilliant turn of events in your life. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. OK, that's your second item. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to item number three. Right, we're going to take a short advertising break now in the vain hope that one of the lovely actors that I've spoken to, other than Robert Bathurst, will be doing the voiceover. Might even be me. We'll be back very soon. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Was it me? Oh, well, I can't have everything I want, I suppose. After all, I just haven't got the cupboard space. Right, let's find out what else Matt Green would like to put in his time capsule. So, answer number three, I actually do have this item, uh, and it's this. It is a cricket ball from Lords, mm-hmm. And I've got that for two reasons. Number one, because I love cricket. Mm-hmm. It's been my favourite sport since I was a kid, and I've actually got more, sort of more into it over the last few years, I think. I think... In some ways, podcasting, funnily enough, has sort of helped me because there's lots of cricket podcasts out there. So I've started listening to them and, and kind of enjoying that. Mm. And it's something that my dad used to play. So he sort of introduced me to that. So that reminds me of sort of family life. I never played it particularly. Like I, I quite liked playing it, but I never really got to play it as a school kid. Like I did, I played in like three matches, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a shame because I didn't go to a school that really played cricket. It was sort of quite unusual to play it and you had to be sort of quite good to be able to actually get to play but yeah, so I've always been a fan of cricket. But the, the main reason really is because it represents uh, my wedding because we got married at Lord's. Oh. Yeah, because um, we've been together since university. And because we got together so early, I think we didn't... We, we sort of getting married when you were sort of 22 felt a bit odd and then just didn't quite happen. And then, you know, we got a flat and things. And, and it just sort of felt like, what? Well, well, you know, do we need to get married? And then we sort of began to think, no, it'd be nice to do that. It'd be nice to actually have a big day and do the whole wedding thing and, yeah. and actually get married and stuff. And so a few years back, we sort of started talking about it seriously. But part of the problem was we thought, we just don't know where to do it because we, we're not religious, didn't want to do it religious place, didn't want to just sort of hire a hotel because that just felt a bit boring. Mm-hmm. And then quite by accident almost, we sort of just stumbled upon the idea of doing it at Lords. And it turns out that you can get married, just just get married there. You don't have to have any connection there. It's just a venue you can hire. Right. And it's not that far from where we live. So we were like, well, that works. We don't have to worry about travel and stuff. Everyone can get there quite easily. Most of the people we're inviting live in London. If they don't, they can get a hotel. It's all that, you know, it's quite easy. And it just felt like a really fun place to do it. So we had a look round. And I thought, oh, this is great. And, you know, it's a sort of fun place to do it. It's an exciting, sort of slightly silly place to get married. Um, so we basically booked, there are various different rooms. There's one called the writing room, which is where the, um, I think where the scorers 
used to sit, I think. Oh. Um, so it's a sort of small, relatively small sort of function room, but sort of overlooking the pitch. And we thought, well, yeah, we'll do that. So we booked that and it's quite a small capacity and that was fine. We didn't want to have a huge wedding. So we thought, yeah, we'll do that. And then in Edinburgh that year, I was doing a show in Edinburgh. We were both up there and we got a phone call and we were getting married in October. So this is August. Hmm. We got a call from them saying, we're terribly sorry, but the writing room has flooded. Oh no. There was like a, a kitchen problem or something, you know, and it, it flooded. And we were like, okay, well, that's not ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, but we weren't, you know, we didn't sort of panic about it. We said, well, what, you know, basically, what can you do for us? What's available? Do you have any other rooms? Then what happened was, again, this was a huge stroke of luck. Because they were so sort of embarrassed that they'd flooded our wedding venue, they said, well, we've got all these other rooms, but we have some events in some of them during the day. So why don't we sort of work out where you can do different bits of the wedding and you can do different bits in different parts of it? Oh, my word. So we were going to have it all in one quite small room, which was fine, but it wasn't going to be very sort of amazingly exciting. It was just going to be kind of, oh, it's at Lords, that's fun. But we ended up having the wedding in five different rooms. <laughs> so oh, my word. It was great. So we had the actual ceremony in the long room. Oh, my God. They had that available for a couple of hours and like, well, we'll do that. We'll get the long room. Definitely. That's good. That's the exciting, special place. So we actually got married there. And then we had the immediately after the ceremony, the sort of tea and cake and stuff bit we had in the committee room, which is next to the long room, which normally no one's allowed into because that's sort of a special place. So we had that. That was great. And then we got Mm. to have the photos on the pitch, which was very exciting. (laughs) And then we, oh yeah, the museum. So the Lord's Museum where they have all the sort of cricket memorabilia, we had our sort of reception there. And then the, in the evening, we went to, they have a sort of um, corporate entertainment bit around the corner where we had the dinner and stuff. So it was lovely. And it just meant the day became a lot more exciting than it was going to be. And we got everyone, you know, sort of got to see the whole of Lords, and we got to sort of explore it a little bit and um, feel like we'd sort of got into all these, ex- you know, different places that we wouldn't otherwise be allowed in. Wow. Did they make you a member? <laughs> no, that, yeah, very much not. We got like two free tickets, you know, to a, mm. a test match of our choice. So we went to see a quite boring day of India versus England uh, <laughs> <laughs> the following year, where we just sort of watched and we were like... Yeah, that wasn't very exciting. Although, having said that, the other reason I wanted to put this in, I just remembered this, is because it also represents the most exciting day I've ever had at a sporting event, which was a few years after that. We went to Lords to see the final day of the England-New Zealand test match. Right. And it was a special day because it was one of those Mondays where they make it cheap for people to get in. And so they often don't sell the final Monday, but because it was it was a, such an exciting match, it was a match where it'd be very seesaw. And the last day sort of every result was possible. Mm. I think New Zealand needed like 200 to win and England needed 10 wickets. So it was quite, it was right on the, you know, it, and it could have also been a draw, obviously. Yeah. And so it was sort of tense. And we went there and I was like, should we just go to this thing? And it was, I think it was a bank holiday Monday. Mm. And we turned up and there was like queues snaking all the way around St. John's Wood. And we sort of got in the queue, waited for like an hour and a half or something, got in there. And the place was absolutely packed. It was like a people's day because, you mm. know, it wasn't stuffy like it can be there. And it was so exciting. And the, the atmosphere all day was exciting. And England sort of chipping away at the wickets. And there was the one moment I'll never forget. I think New Zealand were four or down, maybe. And Brendan McCullum came in, who was their sort of talismanic captain, who if he gets going, that's it, it's over. And Ben Stokes was bowling. We were behind Ben Stokes. And we were all sort of cheering, going, oh, come on, you know, go on, go on. And he bowled him. 
first ball. Oh. And it was that sort of explosive feeling of the whole crowd exploding with joy. and Yeah, like you'd done it. Yeah, exactly. We'd done it. We'd made him, we'd somehow given him that energy to, to bowl <laughs> him out. And I'd never, yeah, that's the best moment I've ever had in a sort of sporting event like that. It just really genuine, I, it really made me think, yeah, that's what, that's what sport is about. When, it, when it's like that, that's, what, that's why mm. people go to it. That's why people lose their weekends to it every week. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, my brother is a member of the MCC. Oh, wow. I'm not quite sure why he is and I'm not. <laughs> he does this rather lovely thing, actually. I don't think I've ever told him that I think it's lovely. What he does is he, he rings me quite often on a Sunday or something yeah, and just leaves the phone in the air and it's next to the jazz band that play before the match outside of the uh, main pavilion. Oh, wow. And he just lets the jazz music play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he doesn't necessarily talk to me. That's very sweet. It is sweet, mm. but not as brilliant as being married in the long room. I know. What a thing. Yeah. Thank goodness for that flood. <laughs> Indeed. I know. I, I, it's one of those classic examples of when something you think has gone wrong and actually it turns out to be far better. Yeah. I did get married at 22, so I should have hung on. <laughs> Lovely. OK, right, well, that cricket ball goes into the time capsule for you as your third thing. Right, we're on to item number four. Right. Um, so this is a, my most recent item by quite a long way. And again, I've got it with me, but I'm not going to go away and find it. Uh, it would be my green screen. It's basically just a green sheet. Yes. Which I bought a few years ago. And is this how you do all your brilliant videos for Instagram and Twitter and everything? Yeah, so that's what it represents, really. I bought it a few years back when I was sort of dabbling with making bits and pieces and never really committed to it and made the odd thing here and there. And I made a couple of music videos for my brother, actually, who's a, who's a musician. But it was always sort of just like a hobby thing, really. I didn't really know what to do with it. Mm. And then obviously, when lockdown came along, gigs have gone away. And, you know, any other acting, I had a couple of acting things that were sort of booked in, and then it all got cancelled. And everything got cancelled, as you know. And so I think like everybody, particularly in this job, thinking, oh, okay, what am I going to do next? Uh, or, or am I going to do anything? Am I going to try and do something else? Am I going to get another job? Am I going to, who knows? And I just started making little videos. And initially, they were sort of just little sketches, quite focused around what was happening, obviously, um, about lockdown and, and COVID. And slowly, I sort of started trying to make them a bit more focused around, I guess, satirical stuff. So again, not necessarily political at the time, necessarily, but just sort of about the reaction to what was happening. And, and particularly like how companies were reacting to it and sort of doing little parodies of how every advert suddenly became about COVID and <laughs> and every sort of company had to sort of put out a statement about it and all this kind of stuff. Because they cared. Yeah, exactly. And then when that Black Lives Matter happened, there was this sort of real sort of glut of companies look suddenly trying to look woke and all this, you know, in a way that felt <laughs> yeah. very false and, and silly. And so the green screen, yeah, I sort of quite early on was like, oh, I should just use this, That's, this would be fun. And I sort of put that up and it just added so much to the sketches. It made it, you know, obviously I wasn't just sitting in my room. I was, mm. I could make any background. I bought a couple of lights and um, and just took it from there really. And it's been such a, um, well, it's just been great. It's, it's really brought out my sort of creativity and doing it for the sake of doing it, for the fun of doing it, um, which I think after a while you lose a bit when you do, something for a job you know it's kind of easy to particularly stand up became I think I was beginning to feel a bit sort of like oh, I'm just sort of doing the same thing over and over again I'm not sure if I'm being very creative and I'm making shows every year but I don't know if that's really what I want to do I don't know if that's I don't know if I'm really expressing anything about myself anymore I'm just sort of doing this thing and then making these little sketches I began to think oh this is a way of doing a different still doing comedy but doing a different version of what I do yeah um and in the last few months particularly I've really enjoyed making quite 
you know, quite political stuff, quite satirical, finding stuff that's very topical, jumping on things that happen on the day, chucking the green screen up, making something quickly, editing it, putting it out. And so feeling like you're sort of part of the conversation online. And it's, you know, led to lots more engagement and followers on Twitter and YouTube and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of, it feels like I've actually begun to do the thing that everyone, you know, is a sort of holy grail, <laughs> which is sort of build an audience, you know, um, as I know that you have done with this podcast. And, yeah. and, and I'd seen people doing that. You know, I know lots of people who've done podcasts over the years and and things like that. And I thought, yeah, that would be a good thing to do. I never quite got into it. I never thought that's not quite my, I don't think podcasting is maybe quite my medium. And I realised that maybe my medium is this, you know, little sketches, little quite quick things that I'm quite, you know, I'm, I'm really careful with the editing and really try and make it as... Um, sharp as possible and all that kind of stuff oh if people haven't seen it it is class it's really good what i think is wonderful about it is that you talk about coming out of the footlights and then thinking okay and moving into stand-up because there wasn't really that outlet for sketches and then in fact you know that you did some acting but not much but Mm. what this demonstrates i think is that you have a fantastic acting skill because you're often playing two people yeah they are clearly distinct yeah 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 and yet subtle oh thank you Yeah, it's been really interesting that. I think it's really taught me a lot about acting. It's funny, you know, I've been acting in front of cameras for years, but it's taught me a lot about doing it because I had to edit myself. (laughs) And so so it's taught me a lot about, okay, don't do that. Don't keep doing that (laughs) thing that you do. You know, do a slightly different version of that. And and thinking a lot about, you know, technical things about eyeline and about how you keep things small or you don't keep things small or whatever you do with it. If you do something with your face, it really reads in certain ways. And if you shoot things from slightly different angles, it can change the feeling of something quite a lot. So I feel like I've done the, yeah, a real kind of a crash course over the last couple of years of, mm. of how to make stuff like that, how to make videos. And the other thing the green screen was great for was Zoom shows. Yeah, I got into doing Zoom shows during um, the lockdown. And again, it was sort of interesting because I think I did have that feeling in the first couple of months of like, well, maybe stand-up's gone now. Like, maybe mm. I'm not saying it was gone forever, but maybe I'm not going to do it anymore. Maybe this is a moment, this is a sort of inflection point that I can be like, right, I'll try something else. I'll do so. I'll write a book or I'll do a thing or I'll get another job or whatever. And then when people started saying to me, oh, do you want to do one of these Zoom shows? They're kind of, they seem fine and people seem to enjoy them. I at first was quite sceptical. And then once I did a couple, I was like, oh, actually, this is, this is fun and it allows me to do stand-up basically but also it allows me to do other things so I kind of got my green screen involved and I started playing with backgrounds and downloaded various software that I could mess around with what I was doing on the screen so it became a kind of a visual medium as well as just a a verbal medium and actually I find zoom shows really fun I'm still doing a few you know there are still some coming up this year and uh and I'll definitely be using my green screen and I'll be playing with the backgrounds and I'll be messing around. And, and it means that you don't have to just do what you do on stage. You can also play with what what the restrictions are. That also gives you extra opportunities. I think pre-lockdown, I had wanted to make short, like short films and sketches and things. And I'd done a few of them. But I think I'd always been a bit overwhelmed by like the... the <laughs> just the amount of faff involved. (laughs) You have to get a film crew and you have to get someone who knows about sound and you have to get someone who knows about cameras and you've got to get lighting and you've got to get a location and you've got to all, and you've got to get other actors and you've got to build, you know, you've got all that kind of stuff. And I'd made a couple of short films with people Mm. and they'd been great. I'd have enjoyed doing it, but this process just took ages and it just, you know, it felt like it took six months from beginning to end or whatever. And actually making these sketches, I suddenly realized, oh, you don't need any of that. You don't have to do any of that. Like that's great if you're making a, you know, certain things do need that. Mm. But actually, if you're just making little sketches that you can make yourself, you don't need anyone else. 
and also it's really taught me a lot about editing about how you can record every line separately and then edit them together and it sounds like you're having a conversation it's like an obvious thing to say but doing it you realize actually yeah that is it's really good doing that like that works really well in fact it's a lot better than trying to learn everything and regurgitate it like just do each line freshly each time and then you kind of you have a good take of every line rather than trying to capture everything in one go and it, it does feel like now i've sort of started going back to doing auditions and self-tapes and self-tapes stuff. Yeah. i sort of want to be like can i just do each line separately because i know that i can do that yeah i don't really want to learn a whole page at a time <laughs> you know if i learn a whole page i'm going to be like ugh. I'm never going to get every line perfect, you know, but if you, if you let me do every line, because I know in the end, in the edit, you are going to use each line separately. Because they want you to act it, not direct it. Yeah. That's the problem. But, you know, I should have been a television executive. I would immediately <laughs> be talking to you about, well, not just only the acting that you're doing in that, but also your eye for how to cut and edit and uh, where to cut and edit. I think that must be something that's open to you. I had a brief period, like about five years ago, where a, cu- a couple of people asked me to direct things, and mm. and it was great. But I think, I, yeah, I think that's what happened is I got a bit sort of in my head about it, and I didn't quite know what to do next, and who to go to, and what to go to, and how to sort of make it happen. So I think what's nice now is I feel like oh, okay, I've now I've got all of this stuff now. <laughs> I've got like hundreds of videos that yeah. I've made during lockdown and, and beyond, and hopefully now that's a bit of a, a launch pad. Yeah. The only other person who has said to me anything about a green screen, right? You'll be amazed to hear, is tell me about him, Freddie Parrotface Davis. All oh, right, I've spoken to him. Okay, he's a delightful man, and he said to me, "Oh, Mike, you got to get a green screen, mate. You got to get a green screen." Yeah, and I thought, how brilliant that somebody in his eighties. Technology is not necessarily for the young. Totally. And these days it's so easy to, you know, that whatever editing software you use will just, you just click on it and it just takes it away. You know, it takes away the background and you add a new background. It's, you know, when you think about what you can do with editing now in your front room with just a laptop, it's, it's insane. You know, 20, 30 years ago, it would have cost millions um, to do some of the Mm. special effects we can just do now on our phones, frankly. Yeah. I'm going to get a green screen. That's it. And you will put one into the time capsule as your fourth item. Okay, lovely. Right, we're moving on to the last item. Yeah, this is really difficult, this one, I think. My initial instinct was to say Brexit, because <laughs> that would be something I would love to get rid of. But I feel like that's not fair, because it, we can't get rid of it. It's done, it's happening. And, you know, if you put it in a time capsule, you'll dig it up and they'll be like, yeah, yeah, we're still dealing with that. Yep, still, <laughs> still a thing. So I think I was trying to think of something more personal. Um, but I think the one I'll go for is um, another green thing matches my name a um green makeup a little uh, tube of green makeup mm-hmm. and what that represents is ever since i've been well as far as i can remember i have quite a red face i can flush up like not always but quite often i'll flush quite a lot and it's something that's annoyed me my whole life like it's something that i've always been annoyed about and and has been kind of irritated me and it's something that happens when i'm it's something that happens when i'm hot but also when i'm sort of stressed or drunk like if i drink alcohol it happens basically when i'm stressed when i'm under some sort of stressful situation it happens and when i was a kid people used to say to me oh you've got lovely rosy cheeks and stuff um and i would be a bit like i don't really uh," and and they'd always say oh it'll go away don't you know it's a thing that happens when you're a kid and then it sort of goes away Mm. but it hasn't i think it's reduced a bit over the years but i still get it a lot And and, and when i say it's not just like a little bit of it like my face goes very red like i go very very red um, and it, it goes all the way down my neck and, you know, and, and it's, quite, it's quite intense. 
I found it quite socially sort of debilitating at times because it's, you know, if I was just chatting to someone and then they say something that I find embarrassing for some reason, you know, it's not even that I am embarrassed. It's just like something they've said. I suddenly, I can suddenly go red. And then it, and then there's this sort of feedback loop where yeah. I feel it because it feels hot. Mm-hmm. And then my face feels hot. And then I sort of touch my face and go, oh God, I've got a hot face. And then then I start getting embarrassed about the and then it gets kind of worse. And then, it, you know, it becomes this sort of feedback thing. Yeah. So that's been something that I found socially quite annoying. And obviously, it's not great if you're on stage as well. Like if you're on stage and it happens, that's kind of difficult. And if you're on screen and it happens, and I've had various over the years, tricky situations when I've been um, on stage, when it's suddenly, I've suddenly flushed up, or I've been doing some acting and or a awesome presenting or whatever and then suddenly it sort of happened right as far as on stage you'd be worried that the audience would think oh something's gone wrong yeah exactly and that's the problem i think i I think particularly as a stand-up you want to be in control you don't want to look Mm -hmm. like you're freaked out or stressed or embarrassed or any of those things and so yeah that happens and and again on on screen if you're doing a scene and then halfway through the scene suddenly you go very red the director or the cameraman's going what are you doing what's happened to your face can you just stop that you know and I can't, you know, I can't just stop it. Once it happens, it takes a few minutes, maybe longer than that, to kind of cool down. And I need to be, I need to cool down. Right. And I suppose it's a bit like when people accuse you of being angry when you're not. You know that thing, of, all right, don't get angry. Yeah. You go, I'm not angry. Well, you sound angry. Oh, well, of course I sound angry. You just said I was angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is the feedback loop because it happens when I'm sort of stressed or embarrassed. And then when people point it out, I get stressed <laughs> and embarrassed about it. And so it becomes yeah. a kind of, it becomes a feedback loop. And so... So the, the green makeup is something that um, when I f- did my first sort of professional acting, I said this to the makeup person. I said, you know, this this might be a problem. And it was because my first ever acting job, professional acting job was um, weirdly, now I think back, was uh, in Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps. I did an episode of that and it was the first series. Right. Very exciting. And, I, you know, but it was a live show. It was, a you know, in front of a live studio audience. And I'd never done that before. Obviously done live shows uh, but not recorded ones and I knew from having done shows that I can sometimes flush up and I sort of just didn't really know what to do about it but I was like well I'm just going to leave it but I said to the makeup person you know this could happen and they said oh it's fine we'll deal with it um and they put this green makeup on which sort of apparently counteracts the red and then they put other makeup on top and 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 it sort of kind of worked but I the problem I've had with it over the years is that that was the first thing they suggested. And then other people have suggested other things. But the green makeup I'm putting in because it's the most annoying one, because it just makes you look dead. <laughs> it just makes you look like a corpse. Like a, and it does work. It does reduce the red, but it also just makes you look weird. Like it makes you look sort of grey. And then they have to put loads of other stuff on top to kind of make it look better. And it just it becomes a kind of battle between the two almost. A cadaver ready for their funeral. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But I got very um, neurotic about it. And when I was doing stand-up, you know, particularly early on, I would get very nervous about it. And I thought, I don't want people to think that I'm embarrassed or stressed or whatever. So I would, I bought some of this makeup. I asked what it was and I bought it. And I used to put it on my face before I did gigs right. and then cover it up and stuff. And I don't think it helped. I mean, I think it, I think probably at times it helped. And I think at other times it just looked silly. And I think people <laughs> were, particularly because the kind of venues you play as a new stand-up are quite small. Yeah. So it's not like you're, you know, if you're under massive lights at the Palladium or something, then fine, no one's going to notice. But obviously, when you're playing in 30 people in the back of a pub, the lighting isn't very strong anyway. So if you if you look a bit weird, people can immediately tell. And I just had years of this, of just feeling kind of stressed about it, because I've never had it diagnosed, because I think, I think basically it's something, based on Google, <laughs> uh, I think it's something called idiopathic craniofacial erythemia, which is basically 
Craniofacial facial erythemia means red face. Right. And idiopathic means they don't really know why it happens. It's a combination of factors to do with stress and arousal and heat and all those sorts of things. Mm. So it's sort of just a thing that happens. And there's all these different things online about things you can do, which all mostly involves, you know, putting ice blocks under your clothes or, uh. or um, you know, things like that. I've tried all sorts of different things over the years. Beyonce has it. That's why she always has that fan blowing at her. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, uh, there are fans you can buy, you oh, can, really? I, and I've done that. Yeah, <laughs> the fans you put around your neck and uh, blow into your face. And then actually, more recently, a few years back, someone said, have you tried beta blockers? And actually, they kind of work. Right. They have actually been quite effective. But since lockdown, I've stopped taking them because I sort of felt like I was taking them a bit too much, probably. And I think I just took them too much. I was sort of, and I felt like I was, it wasn't really a good idea. And then, yeah, in the last few years, I've sort of been try basically just try to kind of get over myself a bit with it and just be like well it is what it is and i can't really change it beta blockers seems to help sometimes if not every time but the thing about beta blockers is you have to take them like an hour or two before right you know as a sort of uh, in preparation as it were so if you don't know it's going to happen then you don't necessarily know that you need to take them sort of stand-ups viagra exactly and i did take them for a while and thought oh, this is helping but i think it was it was giving me some other sort of side effects and making me feel a bit weird in some way so i was like well i'm just gonna not take them for a bit and see how i feel and now i sort of feel fine and i do gigs now and i don't worry about it so much but it still happens and there's still times where i go very red on stage and i just think oh, i'm just gonna have to i'm experienced enough that i can just do this and get on with it and if someone shouts out why are you red? I just have to go, well... Yeah, it's jealous. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think the reason I was thinking about this recently is because I've been putting this stuff online, I don't bother with doing any makeup and stuff. I just do, you know, I just put a, a jacket on and do these sketches. And I've just been getting a, a little tr- a trickle of people going, why are you wearing makeup? Because <laughs> my cheeks are quite red, quite rosy, yeah. you know, just naturally. I just have quite naturally rosy cheeks. And I just, every week I get at least two or three people going, why have you put blusher on? <laughs> why are you wearing makeup? And I'm just like... I just sort of want to explain to them, like, it's not, it's the opposite. Like, I'm, I'm not putting it on to cover it. I'm just being natural. I'm just sort of looking like I look. And it's such a funny thing, because whenever I talk to people about it, which isn't very often, but whenever I have done, almost always people say something like, don't worry about it. No one notices. Mm. Like, it's fine. It's your problem. It's not their problem. You know, no, it's, it's like when people say, no one's thinking about you. You know, you're thinking about yourself too much. But the problem is doing what we do for a living. People do notice. Yeah. They just do. So every time I do a thing and someone goes, why is your face red? It kind of gives me that little, like, ugh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's still a thing. That's still a thing that I have, you know. So that green makeup represents the most sort of over-the-top way of trying to deal with it, which I think just made it worse, made me look silly. And I think I've found since then other ways that are better and have been more effective, but also... I would like to get to a point where I feel like I don't have to do it at all. I don't even have to think about it. No, just accepting it. And of course, that comes more and more with you, as you say, building an audience. The more people know you and they know what you do, the easier it becomes. Yeah. And I think that's the point. Is that That's, I suppose, what I've been learning is it's like, yeah, the less you worry about it, the less it happens, actually. Yes. In the end. It's still going to happen sometimes. And there's nothing I can do about that. But as long as I don't get freaked out by it and as long as it doesn't affect me too much. But I'm also aware that I don't think I'm ever going to get over it. Like, I'm never going to be, like, 100% fine with it because mm. it's just a thing that annoys me about myself. And um, <laughs> we all have that. We certainly do. You know, we all have things that we'd like to change about ourselves or our bodies. Or yeah. And over the years, I've sort of researched, you know, there are maybe one or two... There is a sort of weird surgical thing you can do where you cut certain... No, please, no. ...things in your, you know, and, and, and I sort of looked into that, not seriously, seriously, but sort of just out of interest, sort of how would that work? And the more I read about it, it's like, yeah, this is a, this sounds in, crazy <laughs> to do this. Yeah. A completely ridiculous thing to do, potentially with horrendous side effects. Let's stop the blood flow to my face, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's a funny thing that 
you know, something my wife said to me a few times is like, you know, you know, if you didn't have this job, it really wouldn't, it really wouldn't matter. Like people really, you know, you just would get on with life and it's fine. And it is just, it is an odd thing to have this job where your job partly is to have people looking at you, to have a thing that occasionally happens that makes you not want them to look at you. It's a sort of funny uh, thing. But then I think that's the case with lots of acts, actually. Lots of comics have things where you think there's a push-pull thing of like, on on the one hand, I sort of want you to be looking at me. On the other hand, I sort of don't want you to be looking at me. And there's a, yeah, Yeah. what's going on there is is interesting. Well, I will put it into the time capsule for you and get rid of it. But um, Thank you. But I'm disappointed because I was looking forward to you eventually at some point in your career, you know, getting your top off, getting green makeup (laughs) all over you, showing off the scar. Well, with the green screen, if I put green makeup on and the green screen, I just disappear. Just eyes. Yeah. And and you call yourself uh, the credible hulk yeah it's gonna work Matt. it's gonna work my next video is already written that's great that's okay, good i've good. got it i've got, right. it. I've got lovely. it lovely all right well that's it it's been great talking to you man it's been lovely thank you so much excellent lovely to chat you have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my delightful guest matt green green by name but no longer green by face If you enjoyed this episode, then do tell your friends. You can subscribe, stream, download and share this show wherever you normally get your podcasts. And you can follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and, with renewed enthusiasm, Facebook. Sorry if I've been a bit quiet on there recently. We do try our very best to engage with everyone who's interested and we really appreciate your involvement and suggestions. Although, concerning the suggestion I got this morning, I'm not sure I can get my head all the way round there to do what you requested. Still, the theme tune, written by Past the Peas Music, is available on Spotify to listen to in full. This has been a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. So, till next time, I'm back to training my new puppy. <laughs> He's very talented. Yeah, last week I taught him to play the trumpet on the London Underground. He went from barking to tooting in under an hour. Bye. Bye.